0: Well, please turn with me in our Bibles this morning uh, to uh, Paul's letter to the Colossians. And this morning, uh, we're turning to verses 15 through 20 of this first chapter. Colossians chapter 1 at verse 15, and you'll find this on page 983 if you're looking in the church Bibles. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. making peace by the blood of his cross. Last week, uh, we began to look at this letter of Paul uh, to the church in Colossae. And uh, as we looked at it, we noticed how Paul began with a sense of uh, gratefulness to God. He began by expressing his thankfulness to God's work in the lives of these Christians in Colossae. And you remember how he highlighted that, that what he heard about these Colossians, what he knew to be true of these believers, was they had come to have faith in Christ. They had a love for the saints, and there was a hope laid up for them in heaven. What Paul was seeing and describing about them was a work of God's transformation in their lives, that they had been changed inwardly by the work of the Holy Spirit. And for that, Paul began with a sense of praising God for the work that he had done in their life. But you remember that Paul's opening words also contained a prayer. He was praying that these believers would live their lives in a way that is fitting. He said he prayed that they would walk in a manner that was worthy of the Lord, in a suitable way, As befits those who follow Christ. And in these opening verses, Paul explained what that meant. That a life fitting to God, a life that was fitting to the Lord Jesus, is a life in which we grow in our knowledge of this God. A life that is dedicated to contemplating and growing in a sense of knowing who God is, of having this bear fruit in their lives. That the more they know this God, the more it it takes hold and it takes root in different areas of their life. That it bears fruit in them. And that it causes them to be emboldened. It causes them to be strengthened. And ultimately that it causes them to be filled with thanksgiving. And so when Paul prays for the church, he prays that they would live a life that fits the glory of the Lord Jesus. How should a person live in a way that is fitting? The psalmist asked that question. How can I give thanks? How can I render unto God the thanks that is due to his name? The psalmist said it would be by calling on the name of the Lord, by taking up the cup of his salvation. That we, we live in a way that is fitting to God when we are devoting ourselves in thankfulness to God. When all of our life now is a life that is dedicated to the glory of God. And so in these opening verses here, as Paul is sharing his prayer for the church, he's really, he's describing to them how they should live. Live in a manner that is worthy to the Lord. But this morning we want to really look at the question, why? Why should someone live their life centered on the Lord Jesus Christ? Why should someone live their life focused on giving thanks to God? Why should someone make Christ first in their life? And we want to look at this uh, section, these verses, verses 15 to 20, which many commentators would highlight is jam-packed with its descriptions about Christ. And yet really it is a description that is glorying in who Jesus is. And the more that we understand who Jesus is, the more we see why it's fitting to live for him. As with many letters in the New Testament, they were written in God's providence because of problems that were arising in the church. That there will always be challenges and problems and dangers arising in the church. But those in God's providence were used as the cause for these letters to be written. But as Paul is writing these letters, as he wrote to the Colossians, he's not only instructing the Colossians how to navigate and work through these challenges, these false teachings, but in God's providence, those letters also are sufficient for the church of all ages. And so while we're left trying to piece together what exactly was the problem? What was really going on in Colossae? What is clear is Paul's resolution. What is clear is where Paul points us. And here in this opening chapter, Paul redirects us to our understanding of Christ. These verses then are jam-packed with Christology. Christology. By Christology, we just mean a description, a study as to the person and the work of Jesus. And what Paul is saying is is that it's when the church begins to lose sight of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, that these different dangers begin to get a a hold. They begin to get a foot uh, in the church. But the more that we are crystal clear about Christ. The better we are to ward off and to respond to false teaching. And so it's important to realize why Paul is appealing to Christ here. He is setting a basis, a foundation for understanding the Christian life and what it is that we have come to know about the Lord Jesus. And so this morning we want to see that because who Christ is and what Christ has done, he is to be given preeminence in the way that we live our lives you notice uh, that that is that language is contained uh, in these verses themselves there in verse 18 it says that uh, in order that he might be preeminent young people what does the word preeminent mean the word itself uh, if we were just to break down the word the original word just simply means to occupy first place to be of highest importance, that in terms of priority, there is something that is most important. There is something that is greater than everything else. And what Paul's purpose in writing these words is so that we would come to the conclusion that what is of most importance, that is, what is greatest, what is of highest priority in life, is the Lord Jesus. And he wants to explain to us why it is that we should come to that conclusion. That's how Jesus himself spoke, though, too, wasn't it? You remember some of the things that Jesus said during his earthly ministry. In Luke's gospel, uh, Jesus uh, was saying things like, anyone who would, uh, uh, does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. What was Jesus saying? He was saying that everything else has to be of relative importance. A willingly placed in secondary place. In order that Christ may be placed in first. If you're not willing to renounce anything else. Then you cannot be my disciple. Jesus in that same chapter says. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother. His wife and children. His brothers and sisters. Yes even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. Those are shocking words. But Jesus is not saying that we should hate. But he's using that language in order to highlight this comparison. That nothing else should come before Jesus in our life. That in terms of importance, Jesus is to be of more importance than father and mother. That Jesus is of greater importance and priority in life than even siblings and children. Yes, even your own life. That he is of supreme worth and is to be given that that glory in the way that we dedicate our lives. So Jesus was saying, there's always going to be, no matter how we live our lives, there's going to be something that we deem most important. To me, this is the center of life. To me, this is most important. And Jesus is saying, whatever that is, that is your God. And if it's anything other than the Lord Jesus, if it's anything other than the God who's revealed himself in the scriptures, that is idolatry. And so really, all of us are worshipers. All of us have a God. All of us devote ourselves to something. And whatever we devote our lives to, whatever we say, this makes me complete. This fulfills my longings. This is what I seek after in life. Jesus is saying, that is your functional God. But if it's not the true God, it's an idol. And what Jesus is stressing is is that he is to be given first importance. Highest rank, greatest priority in the way that we live our lives. Well, as we come to this section in Colossians, Paul is trying to explain how it is that Christ is preeminent. How it is that Christ is first over all. How it is that he is to be given greatest priority. And we can see this uh, by breaking these verses down into two sections. Christ's supremacy, his preeminence is shown over the physical creation and then it is also shown over the church. Christ's preeminence is seen over creation and over the church. Well, first, we see it over creation. And as we're looking at these verses, these, we said it's, these are jam-packed verses that require some unpacking. And so we're, we're going slowly, we're plotting slowly through these verses, but it's important that we get them right. And it is, these are descriptions about Christ, but we are looking at these verses trying to understand why it points us to putting Christ first. And he begins here by saying that we are to put Christ first, or Christ is supreme, with reference over creation. Look at the, lay, the way that he speaks about the Lord Jesus. After saying that it is through him that we have redemption, through him that the forgiveness of sins comes, the, the kingdom of God uh, brings us into the, the kingdom of his beloved son. In verse 15, it says, he is the image of the invisible God. Now, if, we, if we've read through our Bibles, that language of image of God may trigger A reminder to us. We remember that that's a language, a concept that is used to describe human beings. You remember at the beginning in Genesis, it tells us that God created man in the image of God. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And it teaches us, the Bible teaches us something about what it means to be human. That being in the image of God tells us that there's a certain likeness to God. That, that we are to carry something of the character of God. That we are to govern God's creation in God's place as image bearers. That, that we can have communion with God. And so there's a, a richness to that description, image of God. We are those who are entrusted with the glory of God, the dignity of God, and the way that his creation is taken care of. But it's important to realize that as we come to this passage, that doesn't do justice to what Paul is talking about here. When Paul says that he is the image of the invisible God, he's not trying to say that Jesus is just like Adam. Or that Jesus is like any other human being, reflecting the likeness of God or functioning as an image bearer in this world. We can see that because of a couple of things. One, when you read these verses, you have to read them in the context. The, the scriptures teach us that being made in the image of God did not mean that one was God. It meant likeness to God. But when you read the book of Colossians, as you read the entire uh, scriptures, you realize that what is being said about Christ is is that he is fully God. If We only turn to Colossians chapter 2. It goes on to say that talking about the Lord Jesus in verse 9, for in him the fullness, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So when it says that he is the image of the invisible God, it's not simply saying that He is, through his incarnation, fully human. But rather this stress here is on that word invisible. He is the image of the invisible God. The stress here is, is that Christ is the revelation of God's glory. That he shows us who God is. The stress is on revealing the invisible God to us. It's the same thing that the writer of Hebrews was saying that we read earlier at the beginning of his letter. He is the radiance of the glory of God. The exact imprint of his nature. So that to consider what is God like is revealed to us in God incarnate. That in the Son We see the radiance of God's glory. When we think about how John begins his gospel, he says, the only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father, he has declared him. And so this title here that is being used, he is the image of the invisible God, is a description that is not stressing simply uh, that he is made in the likeness uh, like other human beings, But rather, it's telling us that he is the revelation of God's glory. Taken with that, you see in the Old Testament, sometimes the word image is used synonymous with the word glory. When it says that he is the image of the invisible God, it's saying that he is the glory of the invisible God. So we have this title that is given to him. But the second title uh, is even probably more uh, challenging. It says that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That term firstborn uh, can uh, trip us up. Because when we hear the language firstborn, we are thinking in terms of time. We are thinking time bound. We are thinking in a very literal way uh, of the firstborn child of a father. But it's important and uh, it's important to realize that uh, we can go in all kinds of uh, wrong directions with this concept. Uh, There are groups, sects, cults uh, like the Jehovah's Witnesses uh, who will take this language and say, you see, this is saying something about Jesus. He is the first creature that God created, that he may be an exalted creature, but he is still a creature because he is the firstborn. And so they begin to think about Jesus being created uh, with a preeminence, but still a creature. But again, we can't take that concept and rip it out of this context and try and assume a meaning to it. What does it mean when it says that Jesus is the firstborn here? Again, when we read it in context, the surrounding verses, we see that in the surrounding verses, he is being given all the attributes, all the characteristics of the Lord. He is described as the revelation of God, right? It says uh, 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 that he is uh, the image of the invisible God. It says that he does the works of God, for by him all things were created. It tells us that he is the fullness of God's presence uh, that he stands in the place of God because in him all things hold together. So just reading this, this statement in the context should prevent us from jumping to a conclusion about what firstborn means and assuming it means the first creature that God created or the highest creature that God created. The other thing we have to realize is that scripture has to tell us itself what it means by things. And when you read the scriptures, you find that the word firstborn is sometimes used in a very figurative way. For instance, in the Old Testament, the people of Israel are called God's firstborn. It's it's a way of highlighting their, their preeminence, that God has chosen them. That God has honored them. They have a, a certain preeminence over the peoples of the earth because they are God's favored possession. And you see that even in Psalm 89, a psalm that we sang earlier. That psalm teaches us that the language of firstborn can be used to highlight preeminence, it's, it's being used to describe authority. So you come to Psalm 89. That psalm that celebrates God's promise to David. That God's purposes will be established in David's kingdom. That God's love will not depart from David. And what does it say in that psalm? It's, it's, it describes how God came to David. How he anointed David. How he would bless David. And it says there in verse twenty-six that David, or 27, I will make him the firstborn. The highest of all the kings of the earth. Now David. David was not the firstborn. David was the youngest son. And yet he is described here. with The language of being firstborn. But more than that. As this psalm is speaking about. Uh, the, the purposes of God being fulfilled. What is meant by Firstborn is explained in the second half of that verse. I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. To be the firstborn meant to be preeminent. Because in every Israelite family, the firstborn received a double inheritance. They received a preeminence because they have a double share. Now they have a greater authority. They have a greater claim. They have a greater responsibility in the family. They receive the double inheritance. Well, here the psalmist is saying that the the Messiah will be the firstborn because he will be preeminent over all the kings of the earth. So when we come to Colossians, Paul is talking about Christ. He describes him with these Terms that we have to slowly unpack and say, what is he saying? He is the image of the invisible God. He shows us God. He shows us the glory of God. Then he says, he is the firstborn of all creation. Or we could better translate that as, he is the firstborn over creation. He has preeminence over all of God's creation. And then read verse 16, because that word for is crucial, because it explains how he is firstborn. He is the firstborn of all creation, for, by him. That word for is the same word because. In what way is he the firstborn? He's the firstborn because he created all things. He is preeminent over all things because he is the creator. And so he has this preeminence uh, as a result of being the creator. Uh, The title firstborn then denotes supremacy on the basis of creating all things. There was a, a Christian Bible teacher in the 20th century. His name was Cornelius Van Til. And Cornelius Van Til tried to help the church deal with different trends that were happening, uh, different false teachings that were emerging in the church in his own time period. And one of the illustrations that uh, Van Til used to do for his students is he would go to the chalkboard and he would draw two circles. And it was a very simple lesson, and yet it was a very profound lesson. Because there were different trends emerging in the church. Pantheism, panentheism, different things that were emerging in the church. And Van Til would always appeal to this illustration of two circles. And he'd say, the first circle represents God. And then he'd go over and he'd say, the second circle represents creation. And Van Til would say, we should never confuse those two categories. They do not overlap. That the creator is God. And creation is is what God created. And what Paul is doing is, is. Paul is using those two illustrations. And he's saying. Christ does not fall under the category of creation. He is Lord over creation. He falls under the category of God. He is fully God. He is the creator of all things. He is the image of the invisible God. In him all things hold together. The titles that Paul is using here, he is accenting the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as Paul is trying to help this church with false teachings, he's beginning again with first principles. What do you understand about Jesus? Not long ago, I was talking with someone and they were saying, you know, the, the basic world religions all believe the same thing. Christians and Muslims, you basically believe the same thing. But do you ask any Muslim if they can affirm what Christianity says here? Can they affirm that Jesus is the creator of all things? That in him all things hold together. That he is the image of the invisible God. We're not simply affirming that he's a prophet. We're not simply affirming that he was a wise teacher who did good works. We are affirming that he is the object of our worship and the hope of our salvation. And that's where Paul begins... He begins by reaffirming uh, these things about the Lord Jesus. So he describes him as the creator of all things. Very quickly, he also emphasizes Christ's supremacy over the church. In verse 18, he says uh, that he is the head of the body, the church. Just as he said in verse 15, a statement, he is the image of the invisible God. Now he makes a second statement. He is uh, the, the head of the body, the church. That as Paul describes uh, not only his work or his uh, uh, supremacy over creation, he also does it on the basis of redemption. But notice here that he describes that relationship with the church. He is the head uh, over the church. The head has authority uh, to direct the body. You think even in our own, our own selves, our minds, how, how amazing our mind is. Our brains receive impulses, both internally and externally. Our brain interprets those impulses and then makes a, uh, an interpretation so as to guide the body. You think about how there are parts of your brain that actually direct all the muscular actions of your body. You think about how your brain... Uh, sends impulses and directions to your body even to do such things as cough. It's your brain that's directing and guiding that. And yet Paul here is using that image to say, so Christ has authority over his church to direct and to guide it. That he has authority over it because he brought it into being. uh, And he brings it into existence as a result of his work. Notice earlier uh, as well, Uh, that he says that he is uh, the head uh, over the body. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Again, he's using that language of firstborn. Again, stressing that he's not thinking in a literal way. Because he's not the first ever resurrected from the dead. Other people were resurrected before Jesus. But his resurrection signals something. His resurrection had an authority to it. His resurrection actually brings about the dawning, the inbreaking of a new creation. If you go back in the Old Testament, the prophets would speak about the resurrection as the signal for the inbreaking of God's kingdom. Here is Paul saying, Christ is the firstborn from the dead, that his resurrection has brought about a new reality, a new creation which you see in the church. And that as he has authority, he is showing his lordship in the directing of his church. The resurrection is not just something that happened a long time ago. It is something that marks the dawn of a new creation. Uh, And so he is highlighting Christ's uh, 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 redemptive work. He goes on in verse 19 and he says, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That Christ's coming fulfills God's purpose. The temple in the Old Testament was the way in which God met with his people. The temple was the way in which people saw the way in which sins would be atoned for. That sacrifice was made to cover their sins. And in Psalm 68 it tells us that God was pleased to dwell with his people, with the temple. Here... Paul is accenting that God is pleased, the fullness of God is pleased to dwell through Christ. Meaning by that, all that is God dwells in the Son. That, that communion with God is through the Son. That That covering for sin is through the Son. That meeting with God is through the Son. That everything of God's purposes are realized through the Son. That he is the firstborn from the dead, bringing about a new state of reality. That in Christ we come to have access with God. That we can be received and approved in his sight. And that we can be reconciled with God. He says there in verse 20, and through him to reconcile all things, whether things on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The Lord is in the work of restoring what we have ruined by sin. Sin caused separation, not only between our relationships, you and I, between human and human. But sin, sin brings separation between God and sinner. that that the estrangement that sin brings about is something that we can't fix and yet the creator of the universe is bringing about a new creation he's restoring what we have ruined and he's doing that through the work of the Lord Jesus through his death and resurrection his death makes peace by paying the penalty of sin his resurrection brings the triumph of God's work being broken into this world. And so now all of life is structured with reference to what God has done. Now we live with reference to Christ. And you remember that Paul said earlier, in him all things hold together. That's true in a couple of ways. That's true physically. Physically. That all things physically hold together in this universe, not by luck, not by chance. All things hold together, not even by the laws of science. Laws don't do anything. All things hold together because of Christ's power. The reason why the universe continues is because God sustains it according to his will. But we can also say, in him all things hold together on a more personal level as well. Because when we start to live with reference to Christ, everything begins to click. Everything begins to make sense. We're able to understand something of ourselves, our corruption, but also something of our dignity. We were created for so much more. We were created to be image bearers. We, we come to make sense something about God. Who is God? What is God like? We begin to see the glory of God in work. Not only in creating but in restoring this universe. We begin to see something of the world and make sense of the world that we live in. I can live with meaning in this world because there is a God who is guiding all things. I can live with hope because I know that while my efforts may fail, the purposes of God will prevail. He is restoring all things. And so in him, everything begins to come together. And so as Paul writes to the church, he's writing to them... To live in a way that is fitting. How should we then live? Paul says. Captivated. By the glory of God. Growing in your understanding. Bearing fruit. Being strengthened by the knowledge of God's grace. And above all being thankful. Why should we do that? Because of who Christ is. He is the creator of all things. The creator came into this world to assume the human nature in order to save sinners. In order to redeem them by his own death on the cross. He is restoring all things. What could be more captivating than that? What could be more worthy of your life than that? And so as we think about how Paul describes Christ, we're still left with the question, what is first in your life? What is preeminent? What is greatest? And is it worth it? Here is Paul showing us the glory of Christ. And he is one with whom we can be satisfied. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that as we think about uh, your word, that we would take stock of as to what we are living for. We pray, Lord, that we would... Uh, uh, seek first the kingdom of God, that we would see Christ as deserving of uh, preeminence in our life, knowing that he has preeminence over all things, knowing that he is both creator and the Re-creator. We pray, Lord, that we would live in light of his death and in light of his resurrection. And we pray, Lord, that we would be satisfied in his glory. Go before us and pardon us of our sins. In Jesus' name. Amen.